Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, I want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are uh, joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses uh, in Airdrie, in uh, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also in the Northwest uh, Calgary in the Crowfoot Center. So we're in a series we're calling Christianity 101, in which we're examining the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. And presently, we're looking at what we believe about the Bible itself, its validity, reliability, and its authority in our lives. And in this message, we're going to continue looking at how to study the Bible effectively, and in particular, how to interpret the Bible. But before we get into it, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and let's just dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we uh, thank you uh, for the fact that you uh, didn't just create us and then walk away, but you have been trying to get our attention. You have been revealing yourself to us uh, down through history, uh, revealing yourself through creation, uh, through uh, the scriptures, and of course, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, we thank you for your word, and Lord, as we we look into this matter of interpreting it correctly, I would pray, Lord, that you would uh, really help us to focus our thoughts and to uh, remove distractions, that you would give us uh, a soft heart, and you'd give us the will, the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So have you ever heard uh, someone say to you, um, uh, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible, it's not mine? Well, this is quite common, isn't it? The suggestion is that there are many ways to interpret the Bible, which, as we shall see, is, is not really the case. Now, I could take any book off a shelf, and by pulling out certain words and phrases, I could make that book say anything I want it to say, but we all know that that's just plain wrong. And yet people do this with the Bible on a regular basis. If you want to remain true to the scriptures, then there are certain standard principles of interpretation. You must follow principles which biblical scholars and secular scholars essentially agree to. This isn't rocket science. Now, some people say, well, pastor, that's all well and good, but then tell me why so many churches interpret the Bible differently. I mean, how can we know which interpretation is correct? Well, it's a fair question. It demands a response. Dr. R.C. Spruill says the most fundamental difference between Christian churches today is not over the issue of interpretation. We think it is, but he says, no, it isn't. It's really over an issue of inspiration. In other words, while there are churches like ours who believe the Bible is true and reliable and authoritative in our lives, there are many other church leaders and church denominations who no longer see the Bible as true or as authoritative for our lives. These church leaders either ignore 
or they allegorize or they explain away a number of the Bible passages as no longer being relevant for us today. Outdated. And I can't tell you how saddened I am by this. That we have people who are leading churches and have this low view of Scripture. I can't imagine how grieved the Lord must be by that. But that's why I say that the major dividing line between uh, Christian churches today is not over matters of interpretation, but inspiration, or whether or not the Bible is in fact true and reliable. Now having said that, I need to quickly add that Bible-believing churches like ours agree on the essential doctrines of the faith. We differ only in some minor doctrines that the Bible is not always clear on. Like modes of baptism, views regarding end times, which spiritual gifts are operative today. Now in 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes this to his disciple Timothy, and really he's writing it to us as well. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The phrase correctly handles the word of truth literally means to cut it straight. It means to be precise. And so with that in mind, let's continue examining the principles of interpretation of Scripture that will help us in our quest to be precise, to cut it straight. And again, I want to mention, give thanks to some of the many Bible scholars I've consulted, gleaned insights from in this particular area, including Drs. Max Anders, R.C. Spruill, Tremper Longman, and Richard Mayhew. For the benefit of those who weren't here last time, I'm going to briefly review the first three that we covered then. The first principle is this. Interpret the Bible literally. In other words, interpret the Bible as it's written, as you would read or interpret any book or any magazine that you're reading. For example, a number of years ago when the Calgary Stampeders were not having a great year, they were within a game of being eliminated from making the playoffs. Their situation was grim because not only did they need to win their final game, but they actually needed another team to lose. Anyways, I recall seeing a headline back then in the sports section of the paper that said, Stampeders still clinging to life. Now, when I read that, I didn't conclude that the entire football team was on life support in intensive care at Foothills Hospital. No, I knew that that statement was obviously intended to be taken figuratively. And you see, we understand that. In the everyday affairs of life, no serious person intends what he says or what he writes to carry a diversity of meanings. So interpret the scripture passage literally, unless the author clearly indicates otherwise, or the context in which we find the passage is clearly figurative. Principle number two, let the Bible interpret itself. You know, if I make a statement, 
and let's say it's a bit controversial, perhaps some of you will think about that statement and you'll say, hmm, I wonder if he meant this. And others of you will say, hmm, I wonder if he meant that. Well, if you really want to know what I meant, I'd encourage you to come and talk to me, and then I'll tell you. Does that make sense? Well, the same principle applies to when we look at the Scriptures. Let the Bible explain itself. Let's say you're studying a verse, and it has two possible interpretations. The next step would be to see how it compares with the rest of Scripture. If you find that one possible interpretation goes against the rest of Scripture, while the other possible interpretation is in harmony with the rest of Scripture, well then obviously go with the interpretation that is in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Principle number three. Interpret a passage in its context. Taken out of context, the scriptures can be twisted to say just about anything. I love the story of the atheist who was in a debate against the Christian. Um, and the atheist thought that he would kind of strike a blow to the opposing team by saying, well, you know, your own Bible says that there is no God. Well, he was considerably embarrassed when the opponent reminded him of the context in which that statement was written. She said, sir, you are correct. The Bible does say in Psalm 14, 1, there is no God. But that's only part of the sentence. The entire verse reads like this, sir. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> All that to say is you can't take a verse, divorce it from the words and the verses that surround it, and use it to advance your own agenda. To do so is to break one of the greatest principles of Bible interpretation. Principle number four. Interpret a passage in light of the historical and cultural background. When studying scripture, your objective is to place yourself into the setting at the time the book was written. To feel with the people involved at that time. You need to ask yourself, how would the people of that day have understood these words of Scripture? In light of the political, economic, and cultural realities of that day. Put another way, what was the author trying to say to his original readers? What principle was he trying to communicate? The more you fully understand the situation at the time, and the more you fully um, discern the intent and the meaning of the passage, the more accurate will be your interpretation. And I might add, the more accurate will be your application to your life. A good Bible encyclopedia, a Bible atlas, a Bible commentary will help you get a good sense of the historical situation and apply it to present day life. Now every once in a while, you run into a passage where it's difficult to determine whether its message is limited just to the first century or whether it still has relevance to us today. For example, take the matter of the foot-washing ritual. 
Now, don't put your, up, up your hand or anything, but do you believe the foot washing ritual still applies today? Well, some Christians do, and of course, others don't. Well, let me give you a little background to that ritual. You see, in those days, the main form of transportation was walking. And most people were either barefoot or they wore sandals. And since the roads weren't paved, a person's feet tended to get just a bit nasty, a little dusty, a little dirty. And so it was a regular custom to wash one's feet or have someone wash your feet before entering a home. Now, I should also note that in that day, washing feet was seen as the most demeaning thing that you could do. It was typically reserved for the lowest-ranking servant of the household. And so we come to John 13. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus takes upon himself the role of the lowest-ranking servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. And after he washes their feet, he says this in verse 12. Do you understand what I have done for you? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now Jesus was demonstrating here the principle of servanthood. The principle of denying your rights for the benefit of the other person. This principle continues to apply to us today. That we would consider the needs of others before ourselves. The question is, considering that we are now part of a shoe-wearing culture, which has paved sidewalks and streets, not to mention cars that many of us drive, should we ignore this particular ritual, even though the principle remains? Well, let's look at verse 15. Jesus says this, I have set before you an example. Notice he says an example. He doesn't say the example of demonstrating a servant heart. He says, no, a way, an example. This seems to indicate that Jesus used foot washing as an example of a servant heart. Something that we are free to do, by the way but is not a regularly required ritual for the church. But you see, there are some believers, godly people, who believe it should be practiced whenever the church comes together. The point is this. Questions like this are usually complex, do not always yield to simplistic solutions. But as I indicated a moment ago, it's so important that we not forget that even though Bible-believing churches and Christians may not see this passage on foot washing in the same way, the issue of foot washing is not critical to the gospel. It's not critical to your relationship with Jesus. It is not critical. It's not going to affect where you spend your eternity. So let's not make it more than what Christ intended it to be. Let's not fall into legalism. Let's not take a, a, a minor issue and suddenly make it a major issue that divides the church. Principle number five. 
Interpret your experience in, light, in the light of Scripture. Now, we've all known people who had, you know, an incredible, amazing, life-changing experience. And then they tried to find a Bible passage to back it up. Or some teachers and preachers, they'll read a best-selling book. And they want to basically preach it, but then they try to make it fit the Bible. They squeeze it into the biblical mold. That's not a sound procedure for interpreting the Bible. When we study the Bible, our goal is exegesis, which means to determine the intended meaning of the Scripture text, rather than isogesis, which means to superimpose our meaning on the Scriptural text. R.C. Sproul says, Sometimes Bible studies are little more than a pooling of ignorance. People get together, they sit around in a circle, they open the Bible, and then someone will say at some point, after reading the Scripture, well, I feel this verse is saying this. And someone else will scratch their head and say, well, not sure I agree with that. I, I, I feel the verse is saying that. Well, friends, with all due respect, it doesn't matter what you feel it says. It, it doesn't matter even what you think it means. What matters, first and foremost, is what was the author intending to say to his readers? What did he mean? by what he wrote. See, once you know what the author's intended meaning was, then you can, you can ask the Lord. You can say, you know, Jesus, in light of what you were saying to the people of that day, the principle you were trying to communicate or communicating to them, in light of that, now what are you saying to me today in the 21st century? And what is it you want me to do about it? So that's why, folks, it is imperative that in our community groups, in, in our home churches, in our missional communities, there is at least someone charged with the responsibility to carefully study the scripture passage that the group's going to be looking at. And, and not only uh, know its intended meaning, but be prepared to communicate its intended meaning to the group. So that people aren't just dispersing everybody with a different idea of what a passage really means. And that's also why our meeting together like this and services like this is incredibly important. There's a movement, a drift, that, you know, worship weekends are no longer important. And folks, I beg to differ with that. I really do. Because... The teaching in worship services like this have an important part to play in the process of discipleship. I'm not saying they're the only thing, but they play an important role. That's why our community groups, by the way, use Bible study guides that we provide each week that's based on the sermon that you just heard the weekend before. 
Because you see, in the message preparation, those of us who teach, we do our best to carefully study the scriptures, correctly interpret its intended meaning, and then the community group or the small group can focus primarily on reviewing the principles that have been taught and focus more of our discussion on that area that we tend not to get to. That area of putting into practice, applying the truth that we've just heard taught. Principle number six. Always interpret biblical narratives in light of the teaching passages. Much of the Old Testament and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the book of Acts, if you think about it, they're, they're really narratives. They basically tell the story um, or the history of what happened. The Old Testament, the history of, uh, of creation and the history of, of the, the people of Israel. Uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus on uh, the life of Christ. Acts focuses on the, the history of the early church. They tell the story. But on the other hand, the letters or the epistles, like Romans or First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these uh, teaching uh, books are largely written, were largely written, to teach specific doctrines and instruct Christians on how to live out their faith. And so when you read a story in the Bible, do not necessarily assume that you're to do the same. Unless the Bible or the teaching books give specific instructions to do so. Or maybe even the passage in which the instruction is given. You know, an extreme example. And this is an extreme example. <laughs> you know, you read that Judas hung himself. Well, obviously, we don't do that. Because the Bible doesn't give us permission. It doesn't instruct us to do that. Well, let's take another example in Acts 2.46. We read that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, does this mean that we should do the same? Well, only if the Bible teaches that we should. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that's referring to the day of the Lord, the day approaching. This verse teaches that we, the church, should meet together regularly. However, it doesn't say that we're to meet or to meet together daily. Or consider this. Jesus wore a long robe and sandals. He walked everywhere he went, when he, he, you know, and when he rode, he rode on a donkey. He never married, nor did he own a house or property. And so, are we expected to follow his example in these areas? Well, only 
if he specifically told us to do so, which he didn't, at least not in the scriptures that we're aware of. The point is this, biblical examples and stories apply to our lives only when they are supported by the teaching books or by a command that's right in the passage itself. Principle number seven. Interpret the Old Testament in light of the new. Hebrews 1.1 says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This passage teaches that God's revelation has been progressive in the sense that God has revealed himself in various ways over the centuries and each time he has imparted to us more information about his character, about who he is, uh, and also more specific teaching to shed light on the scriptures of the Old Testament. Beginning, of course, with the law and the prophets or the Old Testament, and then finally through his son Jesus who arranged and authorized the apostles to write the New Testament. Now, Hebrews 8, it's a great chapter, read it sometime. Hebrews 8 speaks about the new covenant in Christ. And it speaks about the new covenant in Christ being superior to the old covenant. This is what it says in verse 6. But in fact, the covenant of which he, Jesus, is mediator, is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Christ is our new high priest. And the new covenant that he brought about through his death and his resurrection essentially fulfilled the old covenant requirements, including the Old Testament ceremonial law. As the God-man, Jesus, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection put an end once for all. All the sacrifices that were being made for the forgiveness of sins. All that to say this. Hebrews clearly teaches that because the new covenant, the New Testament, fulfills and builds on the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it is superior to the Old Covenant. Not suggesting that the Old Testament is irrelevant and should be ignored, but that we always need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. For the New Testament clarifies and sheds greater light on the truths of the Old Testament. So again, always interpret the Old Testament in light of the new. Principle number eight. When interpreting scripture, avoid spiritualizing. Over the years, I've heard pastors and television evangelists preach a sermon often based on a scripture passage in the Old Testament that was totally unrelated to the intended meaning of that particular story or passage baffles me. And some would even say right up front, well, what I'm about to share with you from this passage isn't hermeneutically correct, 
But I feel God wants me to give you this prophetic word anyways. Well, folks, you just can't do that. Those who do this have not heard from the Lord. Their message is not from the Lord. Because God won't give you a message that is contrary to the intended meaning of his written word. God cannot and will not contradict himself. Richard Mayhew tells the story of a couple who approached their pastor for help uh, for their troubled marriage. After listening to them for some time, he asked them, so what convinced you to get married? The husband said, well, it was a message that we heard the pastor of our former church give, um, a sermon on the walls of Jericho. And the pastor asked, help me to understand what the walls of Jericho have to do with you getting married. And the husband said, well, our former pastor was preaching on the walls of Jericho and the importance of claiming what we want. And based on the Jericho story, he taught us to claim what we want by marching around it seven times and it will fall to us. And so this young man obeyed. You see, for some time, his girlfriend just wasn't sure about their relationship. And so he exercised faith based upon this pastor's sermon and he claimed his girlfriend as his wife. He circled her seven times, and then he popped the question, have the walls of your heart tumbled yet, honey? And because she felt a bit strange inside, and who can blame her? They concluded that she must be in love with him. And they began wedding plans. Now I realize this is a really extreme example. But please hear my point. There are gradations of this happening all the time. Not this extreme. But forms of it. And I trust you hear my point. Correct Bible teaching, even correct personal Bible study doesn't spiritualize like that or allegorize a passage like this. No, it first clearly seeks to determine the actual meaning of the passage and then any application, any prophetic word that it makes flows from that and stays true to the intended meaning of the Scripture passage. Final principle number nine. Watch out for figures of speech. Richard Mayhew is particularly helpful here. One example of this is the use of hyperbole. Hyperbole literally means an overshooting. It's, it's, it's a statement that exaggerates for effect. For example, in Matthew 9, verse 33, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the villages teaching. Now, did Jesus actually go and teach in all the villages? Well, perhaps he did, but probably not. You see, we use language in the same way. I mean, how often have you heard an excited teenager come home from a, a party that he or she was at 
and make a statement like, man, everybody was there. Well, we know that not everybody was there. But this is the use of hyperbole. Personification is another poetic device in which inanimate objects or animals are given human characteristics. The impersonal are described in personal terms. And for example, in Isaiah 55, verse 12, it says, The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, such figures of speech are usually easy to recognize and to interpret. But on occasion, questions of personification have led to some debate between Christians. For example, consider the incident in Numbers chapter 22 where Balaam's donkey spoke. Does the speaking animal indicate the presence of fable in the text? Or is this a miracle that's recorded for a purpose? Well, those who do not believe, in other words, their presupposition is don't believe in miracles, those who are at that place, uh, they immediately assume that this has to be a fable or an allegory. And yet, an objective response would be to apply the literary standards to this scripture passage. And when you do that, one of the first questions you ask yourself is, is this, does this particular story take place in a section of scripture that bears the mark of poetry, for example, where there will be lots of figurative speech? Uh, does it bear the marks of prophecy? It comes with the revelation right away, right? Where there's all kinds of figures of speech. Or even parables. Now, the immediate context of this story if you look at it, is historical narrative. It's not found in poetry. It's not found in a prophecy. It's just a, a, a historical narrative. Therefore, to conclude that this incident is figurative is a literary and an intellectual cop-out. If the Bible clearly says something happened, and part of what happened was miraculous, we have no right to explain it away because we don't like it or because we can't accept the miraculous. A third figure of speech we need to be alert to is the metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which one thing is spoken of as if it were another. For example, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. Now, how are we to understand the door in this case? Does this mean where we have skin, Jesus had mahogany veneer? Or where we have arms, Jesus has hinges? Well, of course not. Usually, metaphors are easy to discern. But again, there are some passages that Christians see differently. At the Last Supper, Jesus took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. And then he said this, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Was Jesus, in those words, saying that the bread in his hand was his actual body? Some believe he was saying exactly that. We believe that Jesus was using a metaphor here. In the same way that he described himself in other passages, metaphorically. When he said he was, for example, the bread of life. Or as we just talked about a moment ago, when he said he was the door to eternal life. Take John chapter 6, verse 53 as an example. In fact, I invite you to open that passage right now. This is what Jesus says there. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, in interpreting this passage, the first thing to establish is the context in which it is written. If you go back a few verses to verse 47, this is what Jesus says. He says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes, in other words, believes in me, has eternal life. Doesn't say anything here about eating flesh or anything like that. He just says, He who believes has eternal life. And then if you look on, he starts talking about how God provided manna to the children of Israel when they were wandering around the desert. And that consuming the manna kept them alive and so forth. But essentially, Jesus is talking about placing our trust and our faith in him. And if you study the passage carefully, it's clear from the context that Jesus wasn't saying that his body was the source of eternal life or that he was a loaf of bread, as it were, that we should eat. No, he was using both his body and the bread metaphorically to say that he is the source of eternal life and that whoever believes or places their trust in him and what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection, whoever metaphorically ingests Jesus by faith will be saved. So there you have it. An overview of the basic principles of Bible interpretation. And I trust it will be of help to you. Now, as I wrap up this section of what we believe about the Bible, I just want to affirm again that I believe to the core of my being that the words of this book are God's words. Though I haven't always lived up to its teachings, this book has comforted me in times of sorrow and loss. It has strengthened me in times of weakness it has given me peace in times of fear and uncertainty. This book continues to give me perspective about my past. It gives me wisdom for the present and hope for the future. I thank God for this book. But I also want to say that I did not always have that conviction. 
In my younger years, even though I was a Christian, I would have been among those Christians that researchers say hardly ever open their Bible. One researcher summarized his findings this way. He said, the Bible is the least read, best-selling book. And how tragic that is. But let me share with you how I came to the place where next to my relationship with the Lord, the Bible became the greatest source of wisdom, hope, guidance, and comfort in my life. The first thing, the first key that made the Bible come alive for me was studying the evidence for its validity and reliability. In my younger years, I simply accepted the teaching of more mature Christians that the Bible was God's word. And that's good. But you see, what happened was, as I began to talk with my peers, as I began to talk with people about matters of faith, time and time again, they would ask, well, how do you know that the Bible is true, that it's God's word? And I didn't have an answer for them. Over time, I began to realize that my lack of certainty about the truth and the reliability of the Bible was one of the reasons I rarely opened to it, opened it or went to it to find answers. All that changed, however, when I made this issue a front burner in my life and I carefully examined the evidence for the validity of the Bible. As I studied all of the evidence, my faith in God and His Word exploded, went to another whole new level, and so did my hunger to read and to study the Bible. If your Bible is collecting dust on a shelf, could it be that you are not convinced it is God's authoritative Word? If you really aren't convinced the Bible is true and reliable, Man, I want to challenge you to go after this. To settle the issue once and for all. To make it a top priority in your life. To study the evidence for the validity of the scriptures. It's just too important to ignore. To leave it for another time. You know, there's lots of great resources on this subject. You can find it in the Appleseed Library. You there's lots of resources, including the Why Believe series, which I've referred to before. You can access it online. You can attend the Why Believe uh, course that's being offered right now on Tuesday evenings at 7 o'clock uh, in the chapel. But go after this, folks. Another key that made the Bible come alive for me was ministering and serving others. You know, one of the reasons that um, students in high school and college find certain courses boring, difficult to stay awake in, is because they just can't see how this particular course will ever have any usefulness in life itself. Well, in the same way, in my younger years, I rarely opened the Bible because I didn't understand its value and its usefulness in life. But all that changed when I stepped out 
And I began to reach out to my peers and minister to youth in our church. Suddenly I was being asked questions I didn't have answers for. Questions about what's right and wrong. Questions about how to become a Christ follower. Questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Questions about God's character, His love, His grace, and yeah, His justice. Questions about heaven and hell. Questions that motivated me to open the scriptures to find answers. And friend, if, if, if you're lacking motivation to open your Bible, could it be because you're just not using it in life? Could it be because you're just not using it to minister to other people? It's just kind of your own little private thing you do? Begin having spiritual conversations with some of the people in your sphere of influence. Step out and start shepherding a group of children or mentor a small group of youth. Challenge your community group to begin to reach out to the neighborhood. And I assure you, the Bible will come alive in you. A third and final key that made the Bible come alive for me was realizing that the Bible isn't just a textbook. The Bible isn't just, you know, a textbook in which I, I read the story of the nation of Israel. It's not just facts. More information to learn, as important as that is. Everything changed when I realized that God actually wants to speak to me daily through the scriptures. Friend, every time you stop and you go to a quiet place for a day for your Sabbath rest, or you go to a quiet place for an hour or even for just 10 minutes and you open this book, I trust you realize that you are opening up a direct line of communication with the God of the universe. That he not only hears what you have to say to him, but he is speaking to you through the words that you're reading. He's encouraging you with his promises. He is directing you. He's teaching you. Yes, he's challenging you also and admonishing you to follow him. Do not neglect so great a privilege and opportunity. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords wants to cultivate a growing friendship with you. He wants to speak to you through this word. He wants to hear from you. And so I ask you again, how serious are you about reading this book? About being guided by and hearing from God through this book? The health of your relationship with God depends on it. Your character is built on it. The impact of your life, the power of your testimony, the direction of your life, the trajectory of your future depends on it. 
And every day you ignore it, you risk giving your life to lesser things, to things that don't matter and won't matter in the end. This book is no ordinary book. It is the living, authoritative Word of God. It is a rock upon which you can stand. Not only is it true and reliable, the authoritative Word of God, not only are the answers to the deepest questions and needs of your soul found within its pages, but it is the primary, it is really the greatest way that God wants to speak to you and me and cultivate this growing friendship with us. Until that day when we stand before him face to face and hear him say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you stand with me, please? So again, as our custom, would you open your hands before the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that you're saying to me? And what is it that you want me to do by? Heavenly Father, I join Paul in saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's God's powerful method of bringing all who believe to heaven. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's resisting the truth right now. Lord, your word says that you have put the truth about yourself on their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that there would be no one here who would close the door of their mind and their heart to you by refusing to read, refusing to investigate your word and your claim about who you are. I would pray, Lord, that you would create in them a hunger, a restlessness until they find their rest in you. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who, who believe you and your word, who would stand and say, Yes, I believe this is the authoritative word of God. But Lord, may we not just speak the truth. May we live it. May we have a renewed hunger to read your word, to consult it, to meditate on it, to study it. And then not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. For I prayed in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.